what you're about to hear is unsupervised. Welcome back, listeners, to Episode 5 of Stanley Cup of Chowder's Unsupervised Podcast. Um, the regular season has officially ended too soon, as we all know. Um, in this episode, we're going to take a, a brief uh, amount of time to cover you know, the second round exit, as well as just sort of a recap of the regular season. But for the most part, this episode is going to be focused on uh, looking forward, uh, what steps to the Bruins management need to take or should they take as well as uh, some other topics we'll touch on today. Joining me as always, we have Stanley cup of chowder editor, Jake riser. Jake, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I know we've had a little bit of a breather between episodes, so it kind of felt good to get the emotions out. And now I'm feeling a little more settled into the Bruins off season and into the throes of Red Sox baseball. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely needed a little bit of space in between the end of the regular season and another recording, everyone sort of processing the season ending, and nice to have a little chance to recuperate before we jumped back in. Uh, also joining me for the first time today, we have Al Sanic. Al actually created our wonderful intro that you hear on every episode, and he also has recently started contributing to the Stanley Cup of Chowder um, website. So everyone, welcome Al. Al, how are you doing? Gentlemen, I am fantastic. How are you? We are doing good, my friend. <laughs> Yeah, I think your uh, call of processing what happened there was maybe a little uh, not exactly processing, more like gripping the computer with rage. (laughs) Speaking of rage, we don't want to harp on it too much, but we just take a couple seconds, get it out of our system. I think we can all acknowledge that there was a uh, frustrating inconsistency from the officials, uh, particularly in the second round. I know it drove me crazy. Uh, it unfortunately was, you don't want to talk about the rest too much. We've, we've, we've touched on that before, but there's really no way getting around how much of an impact it had on the series. And unfortunately, for the most part, it went uh, against the Bruins. So it was definitely a tough break if you're a fan of black and gold. My good friend and fraternity brother is a Washington Capitals fan. And I got a message from him during game two saying, I know kind of how you feel now after round two with the way that calls were going against Washington, as much as they're up in the series, just the inconsistencies that he found within the refereeing, especially against Tampa Bay, not to indict Tampa as a team overall. They're an incredible force and have really made themselves in the cup contenders. But I have to agree that the refereeing just, you can't avoid not talking about it. So we may as well just get out of the way that there was so much inconsistency and so much aggravation. I think from 
not just the Bruins' perspective, but from a lot of different teams that haven't been happy with the way things are going, where we still don't know what goaltender interference is. Um, it's really tough, and I feel like the NHL really has to go forward and take a deep look inside their officiating this offseason once the Cup is over. I think you nailed it with the inconsistencies about uh, for every team there. It's not just this one series that things went bad, but all across the league. I mean, even on the national broadcasting, you got Roenick and, and Milbury and other guys there calling out the referees all over the place. Um, I, I hate harping on the refs too much because they're human. You know, plays happen, they're bang, bang. But, like, man, it's just been – that was rough – and, and I, I keep going back to, I think one of the most egregious ones was that Marchand like pseudo breakaway where they got him on the hands and we're just like, nope, not a, not a penalty. We're not going to call anything on that. It's like, ah, my goodness. It's tough. Uh, and it's, it's happening around the league. So it's not like we can harp on one guy, um, but it's a problem for sure. Yeah. I think uh, I like the way that Cam Neely spoke about this, uh, the, yesterday or the day before we wrote about it on the website as well, but it wasn't so much, uh, you know, that some of the calls that went against the Bruins were wrong because they weren't. And the Bruins earned a lot of the penalties they received. It was more frustration with the lack of consistency and non-calls, you know, obviously the non-call on McAvoy was the big one, the non-call on Marshams slash to the hands. It's in the past, you know, we got to move on. But um, to, like Jake said, it's something that absolutely has to be addressed. And if the team president is publicly saying the league needs to take a look at it, I think it's something that will, will probably come up at some point or another. If, it, if you're asking me, I, it would have been nice to have Cam or Sweeney say something during the series, but uh, better late than never. So now that we got those gripes out of our system, We'll move on. We did just want to touch on whether or not uh, we thought the Bruins um, met expectations, exceeded expectations. Um, you know, it's sort of an interesting year from my perspective because, as we've all probably acknowledged at some point going into the season, very few people thought the Bruins were anything resembling a contender, and you know, maybe a wild card team, um, maybe just missing the playoffs. Which, obviously, as the season went on, they they were arguably a favorite uh, to make the Stanley Cup final. So it's sort of hard to break down what the expectations were. But I'm curious to hear, you know, what each of you thought about that. So, Al, what did you think? You know, overall, did they meet your expectations, exceed it? Well, I think that depends on which part of the season we're talking here um, from, from when that um, uh, expectation was set. So from beginning of the season, much like you said, we expected them to be very – um, mediocre again, like fighting for a playoff spot, maybe not even getting in like the, a couple of previous years and then middle of the season. Then when they turned it on and were the cup favorites, you expected a lot more. So um, initially, yes, they beat my expectations from the beginning of the season, but once they were on a roll and they were getting scoring from multiple different lines and they had injuries with Bergeron and your top line and everything. And they just kept scoring. They kept winning. Tuca kept playing well for long stretches of time. If it was for a little bit, it's one thing, you know, a month or so, but they were like three months where they were the best team in hockey. And so you expected something big and to have that all just dry up in the, in the second round of the playoffs, like that was a monumental disappointment for me. Um, they were able to do it the entire season for three months straight. And then it just kind of petered 
So that was, that was a letdown. Um, so I'd, I'd give it mixed, you know, beginning of the year, they exceed, definitely exceeded my expectations, but towards the end of the season, uh, I think we were all expecting a little bit more there. I'm going to take a little bit more of a positive swing on things. As much as I agree with what you said about how they just kind of kept on scoring and kept on winning aside from everything, the fact that most of the year it felt like they were a walking triage clinic between all of the injuries amongst uh, forwards and defensemen, David Backus, Anders Bjork, uh, DeBrusque and Chara and Charlie, and even the barrage of injuries we heard about um, once the season wrapped up, just the fact that everyone seemed to have something nagging them throughout the whole season, and yet they still perform the way they did, gives me a lot of hope for next year and the years beyond. My, imp- uh, my impressions and expectations of this team are now far beyond what they were. But as far as what I was thinking at the beginning of the season, I didn't necessarily think they were going to be a playoff team. I thought they would have been right on the bubble, and there were some teams like the Philadelphias and the New Jerseys who were going to fight amongst them, but I mean, for what it was worth and what they all had to battle through throughout the entire year, they really seemed to find a groove through the whole year and some common thread amongst the entire team, regardless of whether they were injured or not, and use that to keep winning. Yeah, I think for me, it's it's interesting. Like I said, you sort of have to break the season into, you know, at least two, if not more parts. So at the beginning, going into the season, they certainly exceeded mine and most everyone else's expectations. But obviously, as we know, as the season progresses, you know, I think it's fair to update expectations based on the on-ice results. And to Al's point, they certainly were dominant for long stretches and at points looked like arguably the best team in the league. And then to to lose, not just in the second round, but early in the second round and in the manner in which they lost, I think is what really was frustrating for me. Um, you know, not being able to score five on five, really just struggling and looking like a almost like a defeated team in some ways. And granted, the the officials were part of it, but uh, it was definitely, you know, sort of a tough way to end what I think a lot of us thought was going to be a very promising season. I mean, yeah, it was certainly a disappointing end to a, a really, really good season. Just it felt like they hit a wall. And as much as we already had our segment, great thing about the referees, it was really a lack of, uh, chemistry, uh, uh, the fact that Tampa really forced them to do things that I don't think ne- they necessarily were used to doing during the rest of the season, and just a lack of performance from your top guys. Pasternak was certainly electric in the first round and tapered off a little bit as he got in the round two. <clears throat> I think it, you, if you're looking for someone to be really critical about it, it's Brad Marchand's play. Aside from his antics, which maybe we'll get into later, just he seemed like he was forcing every play, every backdoor pass. Tampa knew it was coming. Every time he was going to do a double move, there was someone on either side of him ready to check him off the puck. His moves became old, and he's a phenomenal player in his own right, but if you see that someone's defending what uh, you're expecting to do, you got to adjust, and over the course of five games, he just didn't adjust. Yeah, I think he was playing hero puck there a lot. He just wanted to take it all himself and uh, you know make the fancy plays and be the man. And he needed to play a little more, uh, a little more loose and a little more team oriented there. It's interesting when you know season ends. There's always sort of the retrospective, uh, looking at who could have performed better, who struggled, or whatever. And I mean, when a team goes so long without scoring five on five, it's it's not just one player 
Um, but obviously your highest paid star players are the ones you look to to really make an impact when you're going through those stretches like that. And Martian's a, a great uh, point in case uh, in that, although he scored a high number of points, the last couple of games there too, it just, he, he didn't look right. I mean, he was turning the puck over and, so it's, it's, you know, from a box score standpoint, he made an impact, obviously, but it, it certainly wasn't the marsh end we're used to hearing about. Uh, the other one for me, too, was Rick Nash. You know, I, I've been on the record quite a bit in writing and on Twitter about that. He was, you know, acquired to be a difference maker for this team, particularly in the playoffs, which is an issue <laughs> in its own right and one I've written about. But uh, the short and sweet is he really wasn't any sort of a difference maker for them in the playoffs. Uh, which was frustrating given what they gave up for him and that he seemingly got a million chances every night and just couldn't, you know, bury the puck. So it, it, it was certainly a couple of players you can look at, but at the end of the day, you win as a team, you lose as a team. And, you know, at a certain point, you have to give credit to the team across the ice as well. And, and Tampa Bay is obviously a very, very skilled team and they executed their game plan really to perfection. So tough loss, but, uh, you know, it is what it is. So we've talked about sort of a quick recap of this uh, past season, which despite the uh, you know, earlier than expected uh, ending was definitely a very exciting one as my first season covering the team, which has been uh, you know, a great opportunity. So we wanted to shift gears a little bit and start looking ahead to the off season. Um, and, uh, you know, the first thing we wanted to talk about was really what's next, you know, what should, uh, Don Sweeney or Cam Neely's next move be as we move into the off season, you know, um, you know, if, if you had to place a priority on, you know, one move or, or one aspect, you know, what would you be looking at if you were in the front office, Jake? I think uh, something that we discussed about before um, is uh, signing a backup goaltender and whether that's Anton Kudobin or someone else, I would prefer Kudobin over anyone right now, but, just making sure that you have a backup goaltender because you have a lot of pieces in place right now. And I, with your focus being on youth, there are lots of guys you're going to be able to call up um, to fill holes in the forward core and holes in defense and guys like Bjork coming back from injury. I think you'll have a lot of pieces there. <clears throat> backup goaltending, it's either Kudobin or Zane McIntyre. And I don't think Zane has proven himself well enough. So I would love to re-sign uh, Kudobin and go from there. It's funny when we were sort of prepping for this and I asked the question about, you know, what would the first step be? All three of us were in unison on the, you know, the backup goaltending being an area of importance. And it's interesting because if you peruse social media, you'll see that, you know, getting a, a top defenseman it seems to be the topic of the day for everyone, both in media and, and fan perspectives as well. And while that would certainly be, uh, you know, quite defeat if they could land a, a legit top pairing uh defensemen i think the m much more reasonable um course of action is, is signing a, a backup goaltender and for me i think the answer is pretty obvious i think it's anton hudobin um but we'll see how that shakes out and al i know you you sort of felt the same way about uh, the backup goaltending being an area of importance oh yeah i'm i'm all in the Doby train who let the Dobin? <laughs> um, I was 
I mean, we know, all know that um, Tuka Rask's workload is a huge part of uh, how he plays towards the end of the season. There's that magic number of 60 games where if he's over that, he tends to do pretty poorly in the playoffs. And if he's under that, he tends to do decent. Uh, hence the uh, 2013 Cup run when they only had, you know, the lockout shortened season and he played fantastic. I don't think he played poorly in this postseason, which could be credited um, very much so, I think, to uh, Hudobin taking a large uh, chunk of the, um, the games from him this year and just helping lighten his workload. So I think um, that's, that's where you start. Um, looking at the unrestricted free agents that we could potentially acquire this year, there's not a whole lot in terms of defensemen. John Carlson's your big one. He's a right shot, and he's going to be looking for a huge payday. Um, some other stuff that I've read is that the next highest guy on the depth chart for defensemen is Mike Green, um, which doesn't excite anybody. Um, he's old getting, well, I mean, he's not as old as Char, but he's, he's getting old. He's sort of a one trick pony. And I, I don't think he's he'd be a good fit here. I mean, other than that, the names I saw were Calvin DeHaan from the New York Islanders, Ian Cole of the Columbus Blue Jackets, John Moore of New Jersey. I don't know any of these guys. Uh, so I'm, I'm assuming that they're not fantastic pickups and they're not going to be that top pair. Like you said, if they can go for a top pair of defensemen, great. Um, if not, I think uh, Hudobin's got to be your guy. We got to keep Rask fresh. And I think that pays dividends. His strong play is what led to us having a, a really good regular season as well. See, this is where I'm going to chime in here about your conversation on defensemen. And I think you bring up a few interesting points. They're clearly not going to be able to afford John Carlson, not with um, the amount of guys that they're going to want to re-sign in the future out of their prospect pool. Guys like Jake DeBrusque and hopefully um, Anders Bjork uh, and Danton Heinen, who will all command at least a few million dollars in the next few years in cap space. A guy who you brought up, who you said you don't necessarily know, but I happen to know pretty well, is Calman DeHaan of the New York Islanders. And I actually think he would be a fantastic fit as a second line forward or a second line defenseman, pardon me, someone who could maybe take over Adam McQuaid slash Kevin Miller's spot along with Tori Krug. He's not the flashiest. He didn't necessarily eat a ton of minutes when he was in New York, but he's young. I think he's got a lot of potential. He's a big physical, sturdy defender, left-handed shot. I think his presence would fit really, really well. And he was injured for most of the last half of the season, so I think he'd come at a good discount, too. I think the situation is right, and I think his type of play would be right for the Bruins. Yeah, it sort of all goes back, like I said, to you know whatever the, the first or highest priority offseason move is. Is going to be something that you know is feasible? Um, I agree. I, I don't want any part of John Carlson or Mike Green. or Calvin DeHaan is an interesting name, but I think um, if they're going to acquire – you know, really a top defender. It's going to be via trade, I assume. For me, I think what uh, the front office is most likely looking at is, like I said, solidifying having a backup goaltender going into next year because it seems fairly obvious to those following the team that uh, there isn't anyone in the pipeline who can step in at the NHL level uh, if Doby walks. And, and Hudobin himself has repeatedly expressed an interest in staying in Boston. I think the question becomes, can they agree on a shorter term? Uh, and a salary that's amenable to both, which I think they will. And I'd love to have Hudobin back. You know, I think he's a great fit for the team. And just personally, like talking to the guy in the locker room, he's a, he's a fun guy to be around. And uh, hopefully they get a deal done. Um, 
sort of staying on topic, but shifting gears a little bit, you know, in, in addition to figuring out that backup goaltender role, there's also a number of restricted and unrestricted free agents that Sweeney and, and Neely have to make decisions on in the coming weeks. Uh, in fact, we'll probably start hearing about them you know, in the days to follow as the Stanley Cup finals progress and, and come to a conclusion. So I'm just going to list some of the, uh, the more notable free agents that are coming off the books with the season being over. Big one is obviously, you know, the big trade deadline splash in Rick Nash. Uh, we also have one of my, my favorite players as a Riley Nash honk. Um, and Riley Nash, who is an unrestricted free agent. We have Sean Corrali, who's a restricted free agent, and I would be pretty surprised if he wasn't uh, brought back into the fold, um, as well as Tim Schaller and Tommy Wingles as both unrestricted free agents, and um, Nick Holden, another deadline acquisition, unrestricted, and Matt Grizzlick as a restricted free agent to go along with, obviously, Anton Hudobin, who is an unrestricted free agent. So I think some of these are much easier as to uh, not only what I would choose given the, the option, but, you know, what will happen uh, in reality as well. Um, we'll start with the, the big name here, though. What do you do with Rick Nash? Does he stay? Does he go? Do you want him? Do you not want him? Curious to hear you guys' thoughts. And the, the Nash thing, as you were saying earlier, um, he was brought in to be a difference maker, and he wasn't, and that's been his M.O. for the last number of years. I wasn't a huge fan of the trade when it went down because this is ultimately who that guy is. Um, I, I don't know. Like, I, I'd keep him if, if the money was, was really right, um, but I don't think it's going to be. Um, he's uh, been looking for a lot of money previously i don't think he's going to just suddenly take a hometown discount here um i don't i don't like him i i'd I'd let him go he's not worth that money to kind of riff off of queen's most famous song easy come easy go please just let him go i don't think he has any (laughs) fit on this team in the near future it was a it was an easy trade at uh deadline acquisition i think it was the right move at the time considering uh, his uh, status with the New York Rangers and what the Bruins were looking like at the time with what they gave up. Yeah, it was a little much in hindsight, but at the time I thought it was the right move. And now looking at it with uh, his contract now coming off of our books, I think it's the right move to just let him go. I think if Don Sweeney really wants to uphold the we're going with our youth movement type of mentality, you got Ryan Donato waiting in the wings. You got Anders Bjork. Jacob Horsbeck of Carlson down in Providence. A few other prospects down there as well. Austin Zarnick for sure could be fighting for a spot. There are way too many names to be fighting for spots. And I think filling it with a 33, soon to be 34-year-old guy who's going to probably command at least four-ish million dollars. He's going to take a big hit, but it's not going to be pretty. But I don't think it's worth it for the Bruins right now to sign him. And you got to take a look at what you have in your uh, pipeline. Yeah, as as any of our readers, listeners, or even fellow writers know, I feel very strongly about the Rick Nash trade. I have since the start. I've taken quite a bit of heat um, for writing that they overpaid for him and that, you know, he was, wasn't really the guy I would have went after. You know, I was pretty much fully on board the, the trade for McDonough thing, which obviously didn't happen. But I just, I don't understand why the team gave up assets 
whether you think there are a lot of assets or not a lot of assets, they gave up tangible assets for a guy who shoots half his career shooting percentage in the regular season in the playoffs. He's at a little over 12% career regular season shooting percentage. And in playoffs, he's at like 6%. I mean, you know, you can talk about sample size and all that, but the guy's played a significant amount of playoff games at this point in his career. I mean, he's at, looks like 89 games played, and he's at exactly 6% shooting. It's not a coincidence that this happens every year, whether it was in Columbus, in New York, or now in Boston. I'm not bringing him back. I know that's a bit of a hot take, but unless he's taking something that's well below what his market value is on a one or maybe a two-year deal, see ya. You know, they, I applaud them for going for it. In a year that I thought they had a legit chance, player didn't work out in part because of a concussion, which, you know, is unfortunate. But uh, I think it's time to move on and either play a kid or, or acquire someone else who fits their need a little bit better. Uh, moving on in terms of uh, other restricted free agents. Um, this one's really interesting to me, but I, I think there's probably a general consensus on what's going to happen. And it's the, uh, the better Nash, as I like to call him, uh, Riley Nash. <laughs> And, you know, for a guy who was making $900,000 this year, you almost, he may have had the best contract or one of the best contracts in the league. I broke it down much, much earlier in the season, but uh, he's definitely one of the best bargains. But with his production this year, there's absolutely no way he's getting a deal that low uh, to whoever signs him next. I mean, where do you guys think he's going to land? Do you want him back? Do you think there's any chance that the Bruins extend themselves to keep him in the fold? I don't think so, in all honesty. I wish him all the best in wherever he goes, but I think that they're going to take a look at Jacob Horsbacka Carlson as a serious third or fourth line center. He's got the right type of play. He's a very strong two-way forward. And I think Riley Nash's offense was a bit of an, an anomaly considering his career numbers. So while I really, really appreciate what Riley Nash did for the Bruins this season, he's going to go find a better payday somewhere else and the Bruins are going to feel comfortable knowing they have an option or two in the pipeline of where they want to go. I don't know enough about JFK to, to be that confident in him. I mean, we only saw him up here for a couple of games, and I, I wasn't um, as diligent following Providence this year as I probably should have been. But I thought Nash's versatility is one of the things that helped save us in the middle of the season when Bergeron went down for a while and we had a bunch of injuries. He could slot up and down the lineup. Um, he just allowed us to kind of continue – um, on at, at a, a good clip. And um, I think part of his offensive outburst was probably because he was playing with Pasternak and, and Marchand for a little while. Um, but I, I like the guy. I think he's worth his, his payday, and I think we should pay him. Whether or not we do, I, I kind of agree with Jake there. I don't think that they will, but I'd like to see him stay. See, that's the interesting thing now to kind of compare and contrast experiences we have with the Bruins that I was – very fortunate in a past life to cover the Boston University Terriers for the better part of two seasons. And I got to watch JFK develop from a really young guy into a very mature player, very mature guy all around. And so uh, even just watching what he's been doing in Providence over the course of the last year, uh, fighting through injuries, still producing really well, I think he's at least earned the opportunity to try and make the jump. Whether he's ready to is another thing, but I think he's at least earned the opportunity to try. Yeah, I, I think JFK will be seeing the NHL, maybe not to start, but he'll be up at some point next year from what I've seen. Riley Nash, it's a tough one. Um, you know, I'm usually, I, you know, 
you don't let feelings get into it or anything, but it's hard not to root for a guy like Riley Nash. He's a hard worker. You know, he does everything that's asked of him. He's versatile. He plays literally all up and down. He played on pretty much every line at one point or another. This year he can play wing. He can play center. He has a ton of value. So if you're asking me if I want Riley Nash back, it's a emphatic yes. I think he makes the team better for all the reasons I mentioned. If you're asking me if I would bring him back, however, or if they are going to bring him back, I think it's going to be no. And I say that uh, to the reasons mentioned before, because frankly, he's earned himself a significant pay raise. And frankly, I hope that someone goes out there and overpays him and gives him, you know, a boatload of money. Um, But I think if you're the Bruins, you spent all these years sort of getting away from overpaying for, you know, for lack of a better term, depth players. Now, that being said, I, I don't think that his career year was as much of a, an anomaly as others do. Uh, and I've been on this train for some time when I covered um, the Bruins training camp this year. The first question I asked Bruce Cassidy was whether or not he thought that Riley Nash could be could provide more offense because he has a great shot. And, you know, I had a, a conversation with Bruce about it. And he said the ability has always been there with Riley Nash, he was a first-round pick after all, but that he sort of gets in his own shell of playing his defensive game and offense is sort of, you know, an afterthought for him. And it seemed to me, even when he wasn't obviously playing on the first line, offense was much more of a focus for him. He was taking his shots when he had the opportunity. He was thinking the game from a more offensive standpoint. So I don't think he's going to, you know, have another 40-plus point season next year, but I wouldn't be surprised to see him, you know, in the mid-30s as well. You know, looking at his uh, his shooting percentage, he did have a career year at 13.3%, but he's had years of 11, 11.6, 11.8. I mean, so I don't think that um, it's, you know, I, I don't know if it's going to turn into a Chris Kelly situation to use a, a Bruins name, but wherever he ends up, I, I hope uh, he lands on his feet. Wish him the best. I really enjoyed covering him this year, but like uh, both of you said, I think, more than likely he's going to sign hopefully a long-term contract with someone else um, and, and get a pretty significant pay bump in the process. Not to get off topic too much, but that's such an interesting uh, moment you had with Bruce Cassidy to talk with him about Riley Nash. I don't know if you guys have any like favorite moments, whether as a Bruins fan or as a part of kind of covering the season that you guys have overall that you hold in high regard. Yeah, I mean, I certainly have a few. Um, I've mentioned before, this was my first year covering the Bruins. Uh, if you're ever talking to me, you can ask me how I, I stumbled into this. But uh, it's certainly been a pretty cool opportunity to cover an NHL team and, and some of their prospects as well. And there's really a lot of uh, things I could go to here. Having a chance to interview someone like Zdeno Char was definitely a, a highlight for me um, as a fan of a game and as a fan of you know his Hall of Fame career. But the one that really sticks out to me is, uh, you know, being there in the press box for Bergeron's uh, historic night earlier this year, scoring all those goals with the hat trick. And it was just a cool atmosphere to be there, whether you were in the stands or you're in the press box. Uh, you know, like I said, as a, as a fan of not just the Bruins and the NHL, but hockey in general, I think that Bergeron's really the one of the best things about the sport. I think he's a great ambassador for the sport. And uh, it's just a really cool moment to be there, you know, to be able to write about it and see it live. And for me, that was pretty high up on my list of things from this year. 
I haven't spent a whole lot of time with Stanley Cup of Charity yet, so I'm hoping to get more involved in that next season. Um, so I haven't exactly covered the team, but from a fan perspective, he was winning another game seven. It was awesome. Like, I felt pretty nervous going into that game. I think the last game seven we were in was against um, Montreal in 2014 or something like that. And I remember walking into work that day, and my buddy said to me just like, hey, this is Montreal. It, it doesn't feel right. And there was just a sense of dread. Um, but something about this one, it, it felt different going into it and actually being able to uh, pull it out and kind of stick it to Toronto for a second time in a game seven was awesome. And one of my favorite goals of the season was uh, DeBrusque's net drive um, game there that really kind of capped it off for him. I think it was Jake Gardner. Um, just he, he did a stupid – he pivoted the wrong way, and he gave DeBrus, uh kind of the lane on the outside. And I remember watching him swing to the outside, and I didn't think he had enough of an angle to get in there on net. And I thought if he did go in and try to push it on net, he wouldn't have any kind of a shot. And not only did he go in on net, but he put off a good shot, and he squeaked it in five-hole after getting destroyed by Gardner in the process. And I, I didn't even think it went in when it initially happened, but it was just that – was, that was one of the most exciting moments for me. Like, that capped it off that we were going to win that series. Yeah, neither – And he just totally lit it up. Say, neither did Jake. He, he admitted he had no idea that the, the puck went in. He just heard the, the crowd go wild, and that's a great pick. Uh, you know, being in the press box, obviously you're not there cheering for the team or anything like that. But, again, it's just a fan of, of hockey, and, and, you know, you watch these kids progress and grow – he was a force in the playoff. Uh, that was just a cool moment. I mean, it's maybe not if you're a Toronto fan, but if you're a fan of any other team, it, that was definitely a, a great highlight. What about you, Jake? There's got to oh, be some you... stuff that stuck out to you, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's not to say that it's not as fun in the press box because uh, there are certainly some fun moments that you have. It's been difficult for me to get up there because um, in January I moved to New York City. So... It's been a grind, but I had the opportunity when the Bruins were in New York, the game that Tim Schaller just absolutely destroyed Henrik Lundqvist. Um, I was... Oh, that was my second <laughs> favorite goal of the season. Oh, I loved it. I was at um, MSG for the morning skate. I'm very fortunate that the Bruins media um, and PR guys were very forthcoming in letting me join for that morning. And we were waiting for... Bruce Cassidy to come out and speak and we're all kind of sitting around us and a few members of the media by the entrance to the visitor locker room and this happened to be a Wednesday night rivalry game so the NBC team is there and uh, out of the corner of my eye I watched Doc Emmerich uh, walk down the hall and he's just throwing he's got a big grin on his face like oh man what's going on and he steps up in front of the Bruins uh, backdrop that they have uh, during press conferences and he gets the media's attention. He's like, excuse me, I have something to say. And everyone's looking at him. And all he says is, I have breaking news. Eddie Olchek has just bought the Boston Bruins. He's not in Boston or New York right now, but he'll take questions via a phone call later. That is all. Thank you. And with the biggest, stupidest smile on his face, just walks away without <laughs> another word. And everyone is just, like, laughing their ass off. I thought it was so funny just... It's little different moments when you're members of the media. So things like that just make you laugh and realize that we might be critical of this team sometimes and we might all take it a little more seriously than we should, but you can still have fun too. 
Yeah, absolutely. And on that topic, uh, I don't know if they're listening or not listening, but I did just want to give a quick shout out to the Bruins PR staff. They are great to work with. They're always accommodating. So if you are listening, thanks, Brandon, Travis, Sarah, and crew. Uh, always great working with you. We appreciate the opportunity. And uh, like Jake said, it is a different ball game when you're covering the, the game. You know, there is a part of the media, but there are a lot of memories and, and great opportunities that come with that, getting to know players and even just seeing, you know, people I ran into Phil Esposito the other day, you know, Phil was like yeah, a legend, obviously growing up in my household. And it's just cool. Little things like that, uh, again, as a, a fan of the game and, and the league and all of that, certainly a lot of great memories than that came from my first year here and definitely looking forward to uh, I'm already looking at, you know, the rookie development camp and training camp and excited about uh, seeing some of these kids play sort of circling back to where we were. We'll, we'll fly through some of these um, free agents that are left. Uh, I think the big names we already hit on, but there's a few of them that are a little bit interesting. Like I said, I think Sean Corrales is going to be back. Even if he wasn't restricted, I think that uh, he showed quite a bit this year that I would be pretty shocked if the Bruins uh, didn't uh, bring him back in the fold here. What do you guys think? You think he'll be back? Oh, yeah. Uh, Corrales, I mean, he, he seems like he's turning into a fan favorite as well. Um, after his two goals against the Senators in that one game to extend the series the previous season and then just his grind mentality, it uh, seems like everyone loves him here. Um, and he's, he's a good fit for that fourth line, man. I like him. I'd bring him back. To make a long story short and kind of encompass how I think the Bruins will handle their own expiring free agents, absolutely they'll bring Corrali back. Such a great energy guy, great character guy in the locker room. And I know that we say that, and your mind immediately goes to like a 35-year-old, like a Brian Gianta, who will bring veteran leadership and bring G-R-I-T grit. But Corrali <laughs> brings a youth type of energy something that's different you know when he scores a goal jumping into the glass screaming you need that passionate kind of energy sometimes and Crowley brings it in the right vehicle I think they bring back Matt Grizzlick too who absolutely earned his ice time as a third liner and really just rounds out this decor really well um oh yeah they'll bring back Zarnik for sure uh who will be a UFA and that's just about it what do you guys think about Schaller I think he's gone. Yeah, I think he's gone. He served his role well as a fourth liner over the course of the last few years, last, I believe, two seasons. Uh, but I think like a Dan Pye or a Greg Campbell, sometimes you just got to part ways and he'll find a landing spot. I think he earned a, the right to find a good landing spot, but I just don't think it's with Boston. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I liked him, man. I was, I was a big Danny Pye fan too, just because of that GRIT grit, man, you were talking about. But, um, I looked up a couple of stats, and, and on the fourth line there, Schaller had 12 goals, Achari had 10 goals. So you're, you're talking 22 there just from a couple of fourth liners and grinders. Like, that's, that's very rare these days. Um, somebody else can probably do it better or, or, you know, for cheaper, as you were saying with the younger guys, but I'm going to miss them. Yeah, I think Schaller is sort of like the, the mini Rick Nat or Riley Nash argument in that I think the Bruins would love to have him around. Um, you know, you don't get 12 goals from a fourth liner all that often. But I think, uh, you know, my resident New Hampshire uh, guy like me is probably looking for a, a longer term deal and hopefully a little bit more money than the uh, 775000 he's making this year. And I hope he gets it. Again, another, another great guy to deal with. Um, but I, I just I think he's going to go where the money is or where the term is. And I just don't know if the Bruins are going to commit to uh, fourth line 
borderline third line player when we have so much forward depth in Providence and lower leagues as well. So I think the writing's sort of on the wall with him. In yeah, my opinion. I think as much as we'll miss him sending the New York Rangers into a literal depression, <laughs> I still marvel at that goal, how he just undresses Anthony D'Angelo and gets that shot off. But as much as we'll miss moments uh, like that, I think so those are very few and far between. All right, so we'll round this out real quick. Uh, Brian Gianta is gone. I, I think he's, his mm. career is over, to be honest. But uh, yeah. do either of you feel differently? No, he's gone. All right. Nope. I work with a guy who's a Buffalo, like grew up, born and raised in Buffalo, and he's he's going to be upset. But no, I think you're right. Yeah, I say this with all due respect to a guy who's had a really, really fantastic NHL career, but uh, I think it was pretty obvious the longer he uh, was around this year that uh, his legs aren't there anymore. And there's no shame in that. I think it's probably we'll probably see an announcement in the coming weeks that he's uh, retiring. Um, the other name that uh, comes up. <laughs> And uh, my chowder peers probably are so sick of hearing my thoughts on this player, but uh, that leaves Tommy Wingles. Uh, <laughs> I've, uh, I've more than said my piece on just about every medium possible, but it's interesting because it, I would tell you I want no part of uh, him coming back. But um, that being said, I would not be surprised if he was a cheap replacement for Tim Schaller or, you know, someone else, uh, sort of a depth 13th forward player. So I, I'm a little bit curious to see how they handle that. See, I'm all on board the gone baby gone mentality for Tommy Wingles. Just didn't provide what I think anyone had hoped he would. He, Yeah, he had a few games here and there where you're like, wow, his presence is noticeable in a good way. But otherwise, again, I've been saying this all podcast that you've got a pipeline. You've got to use it at some point. And I don't think that Wingles is worth the however many hundreds of thousands of dollars he'll be uh, against the cap. Yeah, T-Dubs is gone, I think. Um, he had that great first game. I think he scored a goal and an assist in the first game, and it kind of made you go like, all right, maybe this guy will do something. And then he kind of didn't. So Did nothing. Um, yeah. As you said, uh, we've got other stuff in the pipeline. Let's get him up here. Let's uh, let's get rid of this dude. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it sounds harsh, and we're not meaning it that way for those listening. To be clear, um, we're separating you know, the, the person from the player, but – you know, I, I've long held a very stern belief that you should play talent over energy or grit or, you know, experience or any of those buzzwords you hear around the, the sport of hockey. And he sort of became this, like, security blanket for Bruce, it seemed like, especially in the playoffs where they were playing him over, you know, a 40-plus point player in Heinen and over Nash. And he's had a good career. I hope that, uh, you know, again, I hope he lands on his feet somewhere and all of that. I just – I. I don't think he's the player that the Bruins should be giving a roster spot to when they have, you know, all of these uh, young and upcoming forwards in the pipeline. Like Jake has been been saying over and over every time we record, I'm I'm totally in agreement with Jake on that. So we'll see. Uh, I think there's a slim chance they bring him back as that 13th forward. But um, if it was up to me, I like I said I'd move on. Um, <laughs> You know, one thing that uh, has been blowing up sort of in the Bruins hockey Twitter world here is, or really in the hockey Twitter world altogether, is this uh, these comments from the the Hurricanes ownership and leadership saying basically that everyone and everyone is available other than Sebastian Ajo. And we would be remiss to not touch on that a little bit as it's sort of the, the hot topic um, for Bruins fans, the 
while there's some pretty great uh, forward depth that could be acquired potentially, I think the focus has really been on who the Bruins could get as a defenseman from um, the Carolina Hurricanes. The big name has obviously been Noah Hannafin played uh, in the area and all of that, but there's also, you know, they have a really great defensive core. They have, um, you know, a local kid um, in Pesci. They have, you know, a really criminally underrated player in Slavin, in my opinion. So, one, do you guys think that these uh, these rumors as they are really make any sense? Uh, two, is there any chance of this happening? And I guess three, if you want to, if you had to pick someone from Carolina, who are you? Who would you go for? Um, first off, I have to agree that uh, Jacob Slavin is definitely an underrated guy and someone that the Bruins should definitely take a look at. Looking at the state of the Carolina Hurricanes franchise as a whole, they're pretty much in flux. They haven't been satisfied with what they wanted, so they got rid of Ron Francis at GM and Bill Peters left as head coach. You've got, I believe, Rod Brindamore now as their head coach. And Lord help me that they did what they did as general manager going internally rather than some great prospects outside the system. But I think that they want to shape things a little differently. So I think that it's entirely doable. It's a matter of how much the Bruins really want to give up at this point. And I think that depending on the right price, I think Slavin might be a little bit better of a pickup than Hannafin. I think... Hannafin will command a lot of prospects or a lot of picks. So I think that if you're going to do it, you got to go with Slavin here. I'm not too far removed from that manner of thinking. Um, Hannafin's the, the hot name in the stud. Uh, he's still got some growing to do, which might be a couple of iffy years around here. Um, but he's, he's going to take a lot more to get him. Um, Slavin was one of the few guys on the Carolina decor that actually had a positive plus minus. Um, I think he was only a plus one. But, I mean, some of the other guys were, like, negative 22, you know. So um, he held his own in that respect. Um, he'd definitely be a cheaper buy. Um, it also depends on what, what you're going to have to give up to get guys like this. I mean, if, if, if you're giving up, you're, you're probably going to have to give up a, a player or a, a Krug or maybe, like, some other um, forward of some sorts. And I don't know if that's that's worth it at this time. It depends on how much you value Krug and – and those kinds of guys um, on it. And where will Slavin slot in? You're a second line de-pairing. Maybe that might be worth it if he's going to be on your third line. I, I don't know. It, it depends on what they're asking. Yeah, I mean, obviously that's the big thing. Um, for me, I actually, I've been doing a little research on this even before we, we thought of it as a topic for the episode. But um, a couple points on that is Hannafin is the big name, the sexy name, if you will. But, um, you know, the Bruins are really in a, in a cup window here for the next two, maybe three seasons, depending on who you ask. I mean, Char is 41. And even though he's a cyborg, uh, he can't play forever. <laughs> and then Bergeron and, and Rask and Krejci and everyone aren't getting any younger. So the Hannafin thing, if you're building purely for the future, makes sense. But right now, uh, I don't know if he is, you know, a top pairing guy. Um, he's sort of like, you know, it's a bad comparison. It's not perfect, but he's sort of a, a little bit, he's a more offensively minded Carlo and that he's young. There's some upside there, but it may be a while before they really reach their potential. To me, Slavin's the guy. He's their number one defenseman. Um, he's more in a McDonough sort of role for me where he obviously has some offense to his game, but he plays heavy shorthanded minutes. He can play on the power play. He does everything. So if you could acquire him, you're looking at he could be 
um, a Chara replacement or could play on a pair with McAvoy. He can eat up some of those minutes uh, on the power player at even strength, uh, leaving Chara to do his damage on the penalty kill. Uh, I actually disagree to some extent about the cost. That being said, no one ever really knows what the, the cost is. It's not like it's public information, but um, like I said, he is their number one defenseman. And I think um, his value is probably higher than Hannafin's. Um, he is only 24 years old, just turned 24. So it's not like he's an older guy. He does have a contract extension that goes into effect this year. I want to say it's a little over $5 million per signed long-term. So that would impact it. But to me, he's sort of like uh, McDonough Light. If you can get him, he has the term. He can help you out all across the board. So I would be on board with that, depending on what you give up. And that's always the big question. So <laughs> as the offseason goes on, you know, outside of the draft and all of that, it's going to be an interesting storyline, whether you're a Bruins fan or a fan of any other team, to see what happens down in uh, Carolina. Um, but we'll see how it goes. Um, I wanted to mention as we wrap up this episode that now that the season is over, we're going to transition into um, a little bit different schedule. We've been releasing these biweekly or weekly as we did in the playoffs. We are going to be uh, taking a little time off, um, releasing them a little uh, more sporadically here and there. We'll have some, you know, some draft insights and some other stuff coming up, but it won't be on a regular basis until we get closer to the start of the regular season. Uh, on that topic, I want to thank everyone for listening to us as we launched this podcast this year. It's been an absolute blast uh, getting feedback from everyone. As always, you know, feel free to retweet, leave us comments, ask questions, share us with your friends, rate us on iTunes and Google Play, all of that, and follow us on Twitter at um, SB Unsupervised. Um, on behalf of Stanley Cup of Chowder and the podcast crew, thanks for listening and uh, really appreciate it. Had a great year.